Well, welcome. Uh, <clears throat> God, I always get fucking nervous starting. <laughs> where, where are you now, Brown? You're in France. You should be relaxed. Welcome to the podcast, Quentin. Uh, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. You're somebody that uh, we, you know, we've known for years now. Um, and in full disclosure, you're an investor in Smarkets. Uh, but what I always really admired uh, by you know every time we talked is you knew so much about the industry. I always thought that you had interesting points of view. Um, I kind of grew up in the industry, even though I'm American. I kind of grew up in the industry. Um, in Europe, you grew up in Vegas, that kind of part of the world. And it's always interesting kind of swapping notes. So thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to uh, uh, for the listeners to be able to hear some of your experience. So why don't we start by where do we find you today? Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in Las Vegas, right? So uh, born and bred, I travel the world, but I'm always finding Las Vegas to be home. Awesome. Let's start by your, your trained lawyer, but how did, how did you get into the space? Was it something that was baked into the uh, elementary school in Las Vegas that thou shalt be in the gambling industry? Or is it something that, you know, did you have a family member as passionate about it? What was your entry point into this industry? Uh, uh, yeah. Um, like I always say, I grew up with a pack of cards, a deck of cards and a couple of dice in my hand. Um, but, uh, but in reality, my family's been in the gambling business for three generations out here. So um, my this kind of this is kind of a good way to segue into your to your point. But like part of the reason I took the path I've been doing the things I've been doing is uh, my family's been involved for a very long time. My grandfather was considered effectively the first gaming attorney ever as a as a I guess specialty. Um, uh, he grew out of it, but uh, so so uh, we have that side. We've got regulators in my family, accountants in my family. And we've all worked around the industry on the operational side and everything else for, for, quite frankly, generations. So I was lucky enough to grow up hearing these amazing stories about what is gambling back in the day. And I almost wish I could teleport back 50 years to, you know, the 70s of Las Vegas. I bet that was just one hell of a time or even the 50s, quite frankly. I'm sure. Can you, is there a story that is on the top of your mind that you could share? <laughs> probably, probably not, other than like. I heard it was a great time. <laughs> I can always hit explicit on the uh, podcast and then you can say anything. Um, fantastic. Well, my, I'm from a family of farmers. So, I, you know, I, all my family's from Iowa. I, I, I think it's just, it sounds so colorful that, that your whole family's from gambling. So um, is it something that you guys are passionate about from the business side and the consumer side? Or is it more from the business logistical side that you guys are... Uh, have been passionate about I think it's more from the business side. I, I don't like uh, my family wasn't like a family of like gamblers per se. Right. But I think mm -hmm. the industry was one that uh, in many ways we all kind of grew up in. And so it was very familiar in all aspects. Right. Like even like the nitty gritty of like the tiny casino in the middle of nowhere and how it runs all the way to some of the biggest casinos in the world. So I think just as a as a business, it became something that was just it was just became something that was in the blood. Um, you know, it really was. As a kid, I grew up, we would go to the casinos on the weekend. And, you know, when you start absorbing that at the age of, you know, toddler age, uh, it just becomes something that, uh, I don't know, becomes inherent in what you want to do, I think. So you trained as a lawyer. Is it safe to say when you went to college and you went to law school that you knew you wanted to be in the industry or were you, you or did, did you flirt with being a doctor or something and, and, and get sucked back in? Well, actually, you know, my, my first job was an accountant. Um, I started uh -huh. off working for, uh, an accounting firm in town called Deloitte and spent my initial formative years with, with the crew at Deloitte. And it was an invaluable training ground, especially for someone who wanted to be in the gambling industry. So to your question, I, I'd always, actually, I didn't know, quite frankly, I actually started out in culinary arts. So I was, uh, cooking in kitchens and since the age of like 15, at least 15. As soon as I could get a legal card, I was cooking in kitchens. Um, and actually, that was to pay for all my snowboarding trips. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. so I, I thought I had like a magic mix there between cooking and snowboarding. And then ultimately, you know, kind of fell into what, what is effectively the family business. Started off with Deloitte, spent some very good years with them. 
learning the inside guts of some of the casinos uh, and some of the early days of online casino back then. Um, some of the first online casinos were, were some of the projects we worked on. And then from there, I flipped over into law and spent a good four years with one of the leading gaming corporate securities practices. So, you know, we did everything from uh, finding ways in the U.S. for novel gaming products, which was like, for example, Daily Fantasy when it first started, trying to help Daily Fantasy find its way into the U.S., uh, suppliers, launching casino resorts all over the world. And then, of course, all the related like M&A, corporate securities and stuff that goes around that space as well. So that was a very interesting time. Uh, and I think those two things were great training grounds for a lot of what I do now. And then your first operating role was at Cantor, is that correct? Yeah, we, we wore a lot of hats there. Uh, I, I joined as like a VP and a general counsel uh, AGC and then, and then DGC, but, uh, you know, you got to wear a lot of hats there. One of the first projects I worked on actually was launching a fantasy sports business called Canter fantasy sports. So we built it up from scratch and launched that. So that was a, that was a very interesting experience. So for the, for the listeners that aren't aware, why don't you talk a little bit about Canter because they have a legacy in the financial industry and I, you know, from memory, I remember before I got into the space, I remember hearing Cantor's getting to, to gambling and it was quite a, it was quite a big story. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe talk about that transition of how did this spin out of, uh, uh, how did it spin out from finance and, and how did it manifest itself in Las Vegas? Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best to provide the truncated story, but, you know, effectively Cantor is a financial firm based in New York. Uh, they were doing some gaming gambling work over in London because they have London offices as well. Uh, so looking at the similarity, obviously, between betting markets and financial markets and having that legacy and history and technology in the financial market space. I wasn't there at the time, but I say, you know, to recount it, it was basically like, why don't we take this experience and skill set and bring this into the sports betting and online gaming space? So they had launched a division called Cantor Gaming. And Cantor Gaming was one of the first groups to effectively run outsourced sportsbook operations for land-based casinos. Now, this is like, call it a decade ago. So the only place in the United States where you could do this was effectively one place, Nevada. So they were one of the first groups to do that. Now, there were a couple others um, as well, but... I think they probably made the most news doing that, given their presence in the financial world. From my perspective, it seemed like uh, the winning ticket for success. So, you know, they, they were doing the right things. They were sort of taking the, you know, it shares a lot of the ideas of what we're trying to do at Smarkets is of basically borrowing ideas from finance and bringing it to, to betting. What, what didn't, what went well, what didn't go well? Well, I think um, what is, what was very interesting, there's almost like an alumni group, right, who came out of uh, that space. And one of the most interesting things was all the innovation that was coming out of that group. Um, you know, largely speaking, over the years there, there were the first, the first mobile sports betting apps, right, um, for Apple and Android. There was the first geolocation technology that was built. There were the first... In fact, mobile hardware devices. So this, if you go back far enough, there was no Apple, there was no Android, there was no Windows device. You basically had BlackBerry and nothing. And so they built some of the first, or we built some of the first hardware devices to do mobile gaming, including the first mobile casino games, uh, some of the first mobile sports betting, and just iterations and iterations of new product and innovation from in-game betting, some of the first in-game betting in the U.S., uh, some of the first uh, online casino games, you know, we, we tackled probably everything you could think of live dealer, uh, you name it, right. So it, it was it was a it was a hotbed of innovation, a lot of very smart people really trying to drive a lot of very interesting and new novel ways to do things in the gambling space. And, and I think, you know, some of the, the folks at the company were quite visionary, like they saw these things a decade ago. And many of the things that we see now in the industry that in some ways are just taken for granted, like that's just the way it is. Or of course we have this, like for example, mobile apps, right? This was non-existent uh, at one point in time. And it wasn't that long ago, quite frankly. So 
you know, as you innovate and you drive and you push to bring new things to market, you know, sometimes it takes a lot of work. And I think some of the most difficult pieces sometimes was trying to take something novel into a highly regulated space where there's structures and boundaries in place, given the historical kind of legacy of gaming to get it to where it is now. So we have all the, the laws and the regulations, and then we have all the technical requirements, and those are there for a purpose. And so when you drive new innovation into a space like this, uh, that is where sometimes, you know, you have a little bit of uh, friction between the framework that we've all built as an industry and then trying to bring in something new. And someone even said this to me this week. They said, you know, this is one of the least innovative industries because it's so hard to bring things new to it. So I, I think that was, uh, that was a very interesting lesson to learn but I think it's also the great incubating ground for a lot of the innovation that we're seeing now. So when, when the story will be written or was written or is written of, of Cantor Gaming, why, why isn't it a name that is dominating the industry today? What happened? I, I think uh, ultimately the, uh, the company um, had, some, had some changes and then ultimately was sold before kind of the eclipse of the marketplace. And so, um, it was, it was, um, it was definitely a, a story and a history of the right thinking and the right vision. And then I sometimes think about this as like a product set, certain products are for a certain time. And you know, this in, in, in the space, right? Like if you come very, very early, you know, you have to be there for that long, long term, because it's, it's very interesting to see how consumer adoption doesn't always match with the vision of bringing product and services to market. And I'll, and I'll give you a good example of that. So I've, I've, got, I've worked on a couple in the same context, but I worked on a couple of micro betting projects recently, one of which we finally took live for Real Money Gaming last year. Two years ago, you couldn't get an operator to take the story of micro betting and say, you know, I will accept this as a product in the marketplace for a lot of reasons, right? The, the data wasn't good enough, the data wasn't fast enough, latency, let's go through like the bucket list of like, why nots, which is usually what happens when you bring innovation to this space. Uh, and, and ultimately it was a path of, we'll build the product, the time is right, we have the data now, we can clean it up and get to speed and get to market. And that took, um, that took a couple year path just to get there to get live last year. And so now we have in this space a couple of companies now are saying, hey, let's do micro betting. And now if you look at some of the press releases coming off of like the quarterly earnings, what is the new product everyone must have? Micro betting is it, it's the future, right? And so we went from like non-existent, no way innovation to in eight months, once we went live, this is something everyone must have. So you're basically arguing that it was a timing thing, that the company was too early. It was ahead of its time, basically. The the regulation, the industry wasn't ready, and the technology of consumers wasn't ready for what they were offering. Do, is that a fair summary? I mean, I remember having conversations about, will people gamble on their phone? And you had to sit down and say, yes, people will gamble on their phone. Will people ever go through KYC to sign up for an account? Yes, people will go through KYC to sign up for an account. We don't have the digital technology, the digital KYC people. We can create that. So there was a lot of a lot of very early, very early stage innovation and definitely ahead of its time. Yeah. So after Cantor, what happened? Where where did that journey take you? One of the things I was working on was so we were taking Cantor globally, right? So you know, one of the things that we had been working on was this thing called global risk management, where we could use Las Vegas as a hub for managing liquidity all over the world. And we started uh, expanding outside of the United States to run sports books and then blend all that liquidity into a massive global liquidity pool with a regulated market first perspective, which I think will be uh, meaningful to some of the listeners. And as a part of that journey, I was engaging in conversations with uh, a B2B supplier overseas who had just relocated their headquarters to Nevada, which was called Nix or uh, NYX. So Nix was a global B2B PAM and casino content aggregator. And to expand overseas, I was pushing for an integration so we could run risk and sports betting for Nix's customer base. And this was before, I think, 
this is before we saw a lot of this outsourced white labeling kind of sportsbook management. Very few companies were doing it. So we were again trying to lead and push into that marketplace. Long story short, uh, the Knicks crew came back and said, hey, we bought OpenBet. Why don't you come over here and join us uh, and, and, and come, come to the party? So I uh, joined Knicks and you know, within a couple of days, I believe I was in London and Chiswick and we were tackling the big OpenBet software beast that it is and figuring out ways to bring Knicks into the US uh, and tackle the sports betting market. Can you explain a little bit what a PAM is and why it's important? Yeah, it's the uh, it's the uh, one of the most difficult technical pieces of the tech stack and and one that we all uh, love and hate at the same time. So PAM is your player account management platform. And I try and describe it in a very simple way, which is kind of like when you go onto Amazon and you log in and you register your account and you attach a payment method, it's essentially a PAM as well, where you're a known account on a system that has all of these accounts. And then you have these product verticals that sit on top of these accounts. Today, I wanna to do Amazon Prime, I wanna do shopping, I wanna do blank, blank, blank. Now, PAM is effectively the same thing in the casino industry. It's that central hub. What makes it complicated is that all of the third-party integrations that have to flow into the PAM and keeping these all live because they're all live themselves, right? So it's not static software. So on a PAM, you have KYC integrations, you have, uh, call it CRM or marketing integrations, right? You've got, it just goes on and on. You've got like third-party tooling integrations. You've got then product integrations. So if you kind of visualize this central PAM layer with all of these third-party integrations to manage accounts, to give players access to all these product verticals, sports betting, race, casino, live dealer, poker, et cetera, and each of these are their own ecosystems of integration as well. You have this very, very uh, complex, deep system. Funnily enough, I think I just learned what a PAM was about a year ago because, you know, we built uh, all of our own technology in-house at Smarkets. And the reason why PAMs are so interesting in the industry is most providers are kind of uh, window shopping for different parts of products that they can bolt onto their technology stack. And, and the PAM is kind of the glue that, that connects this casino game with that casino game and, and that uh, player, you know, the, the, that payment method and, and those kinds of things. So it's, uh, it's a very um, jargony industry, but it's one of the important parts. Uh, if, you're building a, if you're building a traditional sort of sports uh, gambling company, you can tack on these different things with the PAM underneath the hood. So what was your role at, uh, at do you prefer Nix or NYX? What's, uh, what's the right Nix, nomenclature? Nix is the, uh, the way to roll with that. So it's, uh, I think it's, uh, okay. I think Nix awesome. is a Swedish or Norse god. I think that's where that came from. So... Okay, I think there's there might be a, a hair salon chain that's also there's called a, there's a, there is like a makeup like, uh, a makeup brand yes okay that's <laughs> what I'm thinking of and every time I saw that I was like is that where Quentin works at? no I think it's, I think it's a betting company or gambling company rather um so what was your role there uh, so I was uh, in the strategy group and then uh, much like I end up doing in many places I was uh, I would say like a floater and wore many different hats. Now, given my background, I end up uh, in most companies working across all sorts of different divisions. So we worked on everything from from strategy on, you know, go-to-market strategy on sports betting products to casino products to PAM strategy. Uh, did a lot of work in the kind of M&A and corp dev where we were a conglomeration of multiple M&A activities. And so we were working on consolidation internally uh, in terms of, you know, you have to look at that when you, when you expanded it, I think we had like some enormous amount of companies all over the world. So we had to get efficient after a string of M&A. Um, and then everything else from that, from working with the product and tech teams on, you know, product for the market and what to build. So uh, there were numerous things that we did, uh, including even on the GR front, right? Government relations, driving changes in the regulatory and legal schemes so that we could do more online casino, which was our real bread and butter, but then also driving to open the door for sports betting. And all of this was um, early days pre-2018 when PASPA came down. So we effectively had Nevada and New Jersey, uh, New Jersey iGaming, Nevada sports betting effectively, and very little else. So you said the name OpenBet. For the listeners that don't know, OpenBet is a, is a huge part of the European infrastructure. So it was one of the first, mm -hmm. I don't know if it was the first, but it was definitely one of the first major sports book platforms um, that 
a lot of the big names that you know uh, used and still use today, I think, um, to to a large extent. So, I believe Lad uh, Ladbrokes and and William yeah, William Hill, Hill Ladbrokes, I might be, you, know, you name it. Like Open Bet was, it's kind of like the Cisco enterprise software system that, uh, in some way, in parts or in whole was a part of the system for my, many of these big sports books. And it goes all the way back again to, yeah, to pre-online digital as well. So, you know, they're building some- Absolutely, yeah. It's a huge part of the European yeah. ecosystem. And, uh, you know, it's also because it was also one of the first sort of digital uh, gambling companies. You know, a lot of the people in the industry got their start there, a little bit like Cancer Gaming right. in, in Nevada. A lot of people got their start at OpenBet as well. So, um, awesome. So you were a floater. <laughs> yeah. How did, did <laughs> I don't know if I've heard too many people describe that as a floater, but what was an interesting project that you had to work on? Well, a lot of it was at the time, you know, pre-PASPA coming down was getting the, getting the sports betting group ready for U.S. market entry, right? So this was everything mm. from proving out strategy and market size and how to tackle the market, what's the market going to unfold and look like forecasting the size of the market. So basically kind of a, a ground up approach to building out this, this plan and business inside the company, and then taking the team and leadership along, along the journey. So back then there were no, you know, reporting groups or kind of analysts that you could go to, to say, show me your forecast for the marketplace. I only knew of two people who were doing forecasts back then like this, so myself and um, Chris Grove, before he had moved it into the Eilers group. So very few people actually were even looking at this back then. So it was, it was many, very much, a, 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 I guess, a business building plan exercise within the company and then pulling, pulling all the resources together to try and get everyone to focus and then build for the U.S. marketplace. Not up to speed on this, but my, my, from my impression, it seemed like Canby and SB Tech got most of the U.S. business. Did, did OpenBet, were they successful at getting any of the uh, sports books using their platform yeah. in the States? So I would say the three, maybe four major providers who got in were Canby, SB Tech, IGT, and Scientific Games initially. Um, SG and IGT, mm. well, you know, go back in time, right? So we were, I was at Nix for probably about a year or so, and then SG came knocking to buy the company. So uh, a very small team of us worked on that deal and that became SG Digital. So that became Scientific Games' platform approach to tackle the marketplace. Now, that entity and those businesses are on several new iterations of M&A right now, but uh, that's where Scientific Games was able to capture market share. They did fairly well, IGT did well, and then Cambi and SB Tech. And I think Cambi initially really uh, stormed the fences, let's say, and took a very large market share. It's it now it's in flux, right? Because in technology, in the gaming space, and then in, in terms of how people look at where they want to own or they want to lease technology, it's changing. So certain big customers who were customers of Canby are now shifting off because they've either taken an in-house strategy or, um, well, most, most of them because they've taken an in-house strategy and they don't need the license tech anymore. So what do you think Canby did that uh, gave them such an advantage? Ease of deployment cost of deployment, right? <clears throat> Replicable turnkey solution. Like, you know, when you got there and you went, you got it, it went live, they deployed quickly and the price point was right. So I think being, they were prepared and, you know, can be and kindred in the family, right? So they were prepared, they had honed delivery. So they really knew how to bring things to market. They knew how to price it right and and it worked, right? It was new tech. It looked good. It played well, and they adapted it for the U.S. market. Then afterwards, you transitioned into founding your own company. Uh, can you talk to us about what made you decide to stick it out on your own and and tell the listeners what you were trying to accomplish with this company? Yeah. So um, essentially, in 2018, uh, following the, the Supreme Court finding PASPA was unconstitutional. A lot of what I was looking at the time was uh, companies getting ready to tackle the U.S. marketplace. And I think it caught a lot of people very flat-footed. Uh, even if you went back to 2017, there, there was definitely a couple of us who were looking at this saying, the winds are changing, this is coming. 
Uh, and I remember those conversations where people were like, it'll never happen. Not in my lifetime. You know, look at Black Friday. This is not, this is never going to happen, right? Poker Black uh, Friday, right. not uh, the, the Great Depression. That's right. There was no, uh, there's, yeah, that's right. The Poker Black Friday. So people <laughs> felt, generally speaking, uh, globally that, um, and even in the U.S. as well, that there was not going to be a sea change. And I'm not sure how fully understood a decision by the Supreme Court before it was made, if it found it unconstitutional or partially unconstitutional, and people are trying to forecast the probability of like all these different potential scenarios. I don't know how many people put a lot of weight on the whole thing's coming down. Uh, and so, you know, having been in gambling for a pretty long time and over my various iterations of experience, I spent a lot of time around innovation and building companies for companies or inside of companies. And then in 2018, when PASPA came down and the industry was just like, now what? Um, you know, having experience on the B2B side and services side, particularly around sports betting as well, I thought to myself, well, I might as well go launch one myself because I think if you do it at this time, it's very competitive, but I can move fast enough and the window is right that I can build uh, a B2B software provider. And then also what a lot of people hadn't done yet and I was trying to drive the market to was vertical integration on the supply side. So in the US in those early days, being a platform PAM plus Sportsbook or PAM Sportsbook casino provider is not enough, right? You have to build in the services around it because most customers would be so new to sports betting that they wouldn't understand the nuances of everything from running risk and trading to customer service to marketing. So, uh, you know, it was, it was the, that was the hypo, right? I think that if I start building a B2B vertically integrated supplier in 2018 and I find good partners in the space that I've known for some time who could be customers of mine, that I can bring a B2B supplier to the marketplace. And then in 18 to 24 months, uh, I kind of set that as the time frame. I could either find myself at a decision point where it's M&A activity or it's continued growth activity, depending on how the marketplace developed, depending on how much competition is out there. Uh, so that was uh, Betworks, which ultimately sold to uh, Bally's Interactive. Well, Bally's, and that became Bally's Interactive, I suppose. You mentioned that uh, Canby had early uh, had big success in the United States, at least early on, because it was mm -hmm. very turnkey, as the word you use, because it's easy to integrate and, and uh you know, could go live very easily. So, so you're saying that Canby didn't go far enough and that's the opportunity that you saw with Betworks to have another layer of integration that was faster and easier? Well, uh, a couple of things. If you look at the time in 2018, Canby actually wasn't really in the market at that point, right? So this is early on, like this is before deals were even signed. So, uh, or they were just starting to get signed. Actually, maybe Canby towards the end of 18 had a couple. In any case, my, 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 my good friends at Canby, you know, they, they were really good at competing. But then when you look at the size of the market, no single supplier could deliver on every single opportunity. And no single supplier could sign every single opportunity. So when you look at the size of the market demand versus the number of suppliers that were available, even if a supplier that existed was better tech, more well-staffed, fill in all the blanks, or was existing and they had all these land-based relationships, you still couldn't satisfy demand. So, you know, it's kind of like, you know, any, any other kind of demand supply scenario. So I think we had demand outstripping supply. So even if you had that scenario where they had a better product or better services, you still were there as an operator. I think the second thing too, is that there was a learning curve very early on that the U.S. sports betting market is not necessarily the European sports betting market. The, not only are the sports different, but also the markets are different. The bet types are different. The way you run risk is different. The consumer is highly different. And those nuances uh, are actually very important to running a successful sportsbook operation in the United States. And so I think, you know, having worked on the operator side and the technology delivery side, there weren't a lot of people who had that similar experience. And so there were a couple of nuances to, I think, the hypo, hypo in terms of launching BetWorks. One, demand will outstrip supply. Two, there will need to be a U.S. first, U.S. focused business. 
So everything I had built was all based in the US or North America. Uh, and I think those differences and also having been one of the few people who worked in operations before in an operating company, all of those things added up to competitive advantages to win in the marketplace. As a tech guy myself, I'm always interested in uh, the actual nitty gritty of building the, the platform, the technology. Did you go out and hire a bunch of engineers or did you, um, what did you do to build the, your platform? It, it's, it's a very difficult space, right? I, I think sports betting tech is probably the most, if, uh, pretty sure the most complicated tech there is in the gambling space, especially when you add digital. And a part of that comes from, as you know, when you, when you look at this tech from the market's point of view, uh, financial market's point of view, and the sports betting point of view, and the amount of data that is flowing in real time across all of these distributed devices, which are consumer devices, and then also all that data that's flowing in and out of a core single server system, or that could be, it could be more decentralized, but effectively the ins and outs of all of this data is massive, right? It's just insane. And very similar, I guess, to the RGS and the casino space as well. So when you build that kind of complicated tech, I, I don't think there's, uh, there's not a lot of people who do it. So like when you talk to people in the, in the industry globally, you end up talking about like, you know, 10, 10 platforms over time. So in this case, in a startup, I had to locate a contracted group to come in and contract the software services. And, and that's how we kicked it off, right? Plus one, you know, uh, you know, I was bootstrapping this thing. So when you're bootstrapping, <laughs> you, know, the, you know the cost of tech teams, especially in today's market. I mean, you know, bootstrapping and having a, you know, multi-million dollar burn rate is probably not the way to do it. So we had to, we had to be very creative in using contractors to get to market. And then we also had a very good partner in our first customer, the score. Uh, you know, the Levy's are, you know, some good friends and, and great guys. And so they were very supportive of the business and bringing everything together. You know, just from a, a founder to founder kind of question, why, why not go build a sports book yourself? Not interested, too hard, you know, why not go out and build your own brand? Or like on the B2C side? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I, I, cause to me, that's, I mean, to me, that's what the industry needs more of, you know, like you you know, if you're not familiar with the way the industry, for the listeners, if you're not familiar with the way the industry is, is built, almost all the uh, BDC operators outsource the technology, which to me, you know, as a tech guy is crazy. It's, it's, you know, if you think about traditional finance, sorry, excuse me, if you think about traditional internet companies, I mean, they all own mm -hmm. their own technology. And, and I feel like sports betting has to be one of the biggest industries that just the technology is outsourced to key providers. So, I'm always curious why, you know, somebody of your skill set who has to go through all the trouble of, of getting the engineers together and putting a company together, why not just go for the, uh, the, the whole enchilada? It's a good question. So I think, first of all, you're right. It's very interesting that like in this marketplace globally, not even, it's not a U.S. phenomenon, globally, third-party technology in the gambling space is pretty standard, Right. And what mm. we've seen, at least in the U.S. marketplace, as part of the, especially with the publicly traded companies, a part of the thesis in the go-to-market is I am going to in-house my technology and then save on those expenses, control my destiny, one, two, three, four, five, et cetera, et cetera. But I think what's going to be interesting, we'll see as these companies look at the cost of maintaining this development, and then undoubtedly we're going to see a shift where some of these companies start to cut resources on tech because someone at that point doesn't see the ROI on the size of the tech team, which then means that technology is not going to be continued to grow and maintain its competitiveness in the market. And then we're going to see some of these companies then at some point say, geez, my tech is now old and not competitive anymore. I'm just going to go back to licensing my system from the newest and greatest B2B supplier. So I think we're going to see this, this life cycle of technology. And we're on this, at least in the U.S. marketplace, if we consider this kind of a... Um, early stage evolving industry, although it has existed in other forms for a very long time. If we see everyone going on this curve, we're like, I got to get to market. So I got to license something because uh, me building and me owning and me trying to run a tech system of which a stack I don't know. And it's very complicated. It's too much to go to market. So that's why you saw everyone just say like, look, I don't care what the tech stack is. Just get me to market. So operators in the U.S. were using multiple tech stacks in multiple markets just to get live. And then they start to rationalize the business. They say, okay, 
can I buy someone to go in-house uh, or can I build something myself and take it in-house? And so I think we're seeing that curve now on the B2C side. And then to your question, I was trying to be picks and shovels uh, with Betworks as opposed to competing on the marketing uh, and digital spend side. So I wanted to be on that first wave of, I need picks and shovels. You can give me picks and shovels. Okay, I'll take it. And then, you know, is there ever an opportunity that I think about doing B2C? Potentially, potentially. But, you know, it's it's a highly competitive, call it spendy market right now. So it'll be very interesting to see how that works its way out in in the next couple of years. How did the M&A process go with, with Ballets? Was, did you hire a banker and were you, were you for sale or, or did they come knocking? How, how, how did that go? So uh, it, it's, um, M&A is fun, if you've, uh, as you know, right? So it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun part of the life cycle of a business because M&A sometimes is the outcome um, rate. Are, are you being serious? Are you serious, joking or being serious? serious? Yeah. So, well, I mean, when you... <laughs> You well, find well, M&A I, fun. I find building fun. I'm a builder. I like yeah, to Yeah, well, I mean, look. The banker yeah, stuff. Okay, fine. Well, I mean, there's different parts know. of it. But, like, if you're, on the, if you're working on the deal team and you're buying or selling something, it, 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 can, be, it can be a lot of fun. I mean, uh, when we were selling Knicks, we were, like, flying all over the world. Anyways, it, it can be a lot of fun. So, um, and it's just like when you look at the evolution of businesses and products and life cycles, right? I mean, you have like these life cycles with companies, right? And we're going to see this now with the market evolving and you look at the current state of today's marketplace, right? And whether private investment VC funds are going to dry up in terms of supporting the startup community that we have around the space right now. So we're going to see like this evolution of companies where some, you know, some fail, some die, some succeed. And then as companies start to succeed or some are succeeding more than others, you have like this M&A cycle as well, right? And, and we had a SPAC cycle. We had a go-to-market publicly traded company cycle. And so, you know, each of these are kind of like, as, as I look at them, business life cycles, right? And sometimes you have evolutions in the life of a business. So you can build it at some point after you build it and you hit a certain maturity level, what happens to that business sometimes, you know, and, and sometimes that's M&A, sometimes that you just continue to grow. So I think of that M&A as one of those steps in the life cycle of a business. And the reason I think it's fun is because it's about, it's like, it's about taking something new on this next journey. Right. Uh, so that's what I think is kind of exciting mm. about it. So, you know, look, the M&A with Bally's is great. You end up, as everyone knows, you have a lot of attorneys. Um, you know, you're always asking everyone like, why isn't this done sooner? Uh, <laughs> but, but it, it, uh, it was, it was a quick process, you know, hats off to, to Bally's and the crew there and the team there. It was, it was a quick process. We made quick decisions and we were able to execute on it in very short order coming out of the COVID crisis, right? So I think we were the first big M&A deal coming out of COVID. Um, and and that we, we got that deal done in fairly short order, even though it was a lot of lawyer's time um, we got that done and then, uh, went on to merge and to become Bally's interactive. And do you, do you still work at, do you work at Bally's? Do you have an earn out? How did that, how did that work out? Let's see, uh, in publicly announced statements there, there was, um, basically the, the full sale of the company right up front. So, okay. That's yeah, nice and yeah. simple. The simpler, the better. Uh, look, and, and Adi and the guys are a great team. You know, many of my friends are still there uh, from Betworks who came on. Uh, you've got, and that was part of the thesis as well. Some of the guys who joined were longtime friends from the industry. Uh, Jay Rude and the team out of Jersey. I mean, these guys are, are hardcore gaming, sports betting enthusiasts from the industry. And they stuck with Bally's and the team there. And I think Bally's, uh, they have a very compelling proposition. And with GameSys now, it's it's uh, they're in it for the long haul. So I support that team as much as I can as a former founder and uh, acquisition target. So one of the reasons that we ended up bonding over the years was your love of exchanges and leaving aside the the investment first markets. But what what brought what what made you passionate about exchanges? Was it your experience with Cantor, or or was it some other experience? I, I think I think it's just started with my my love of financial markets, right? So, you know, 
part of my part of my studies and experiences with some major uh, studying studying with and under some of the major hedge fund founders back in the day, and just learning about uh, investment banking, financial markets, and, and you know economics, you know, and that that kind of topic area around education. So I've always been fascinated with that side of the world. I actually thought at one point I might go down the banker route way back in the day, um, <laughs> which you know. So right after being an accountant, yeah, just, you just... You know, a glutton for punishment. So uh, <laughs> no, I, I, that would have been before I started accounting. I thought maybe banking instead, instead like okay. way back in the days. But anyways, yeah. it's it's I've always had a M and A's fun <laughs> here. That's what I'm told. So. Um, yeah. So I look. I, I I have always thought that area is fascinating. The time at Cantor, I just think just sped that up, right? Because there was always this view of it's not a sports bet; it's a market. It's an event upon which you can place uh, a bet, right? Which is very similar to obviously the financial markets. And I think that vision of changing even the terminology from bet to market, as you even watch the industry change its lingo to say, oh. We have a thousand markets available upon which you can place a bet, as opposed to you can bet on a thousand things. And when people start looking at it like that, right, and you start looking at how the systems work from a technology point of view, how these markets or these odds are compiled and created, you get this financial view of this marketplace. So, what do you think that what what do you think the future holds for exchanges? Do you see things going more the you know sports books bringing their technology in house and you know the kind of quote unquote traditional path, or do you think exchanges will play a role in the future of the American market? I think exchanges, at some level, must play a role in the future of the U.S. market. I think it's it's a couple of things. I think there's consumer adoption, which is usually consumer adoption awareness and their experience with exchanges is one. I think the consumers hadn't really been fully aware of what this is. I think two, we have a generational shift where markets and direct consumer engagement in exchanges and securities has evolved to the point where you have very young generational shifts in terms of now I'm I'm 18 and now I'm going to trade in the market, right? And the securities markets, I'm in financial markets. And I think that generational shift makes it much more of an opportunity for people to adopt exchanges. I think the idea that you can set your own markets, you can set your own prices, that will be the democratization of sports betting. I think that wave is coming and I think this generation is the right generation to adopt something like that. So I think that's very interesting. Now competitively, how does that stack up against sportsbook as an operation, the traditional sportsbook where you're you know against the bookmaker? I think there's always going to be those two opportunities where some people just don't care about setting up uh, their own markets. But I think, you know, to the extent like with markets where you can launch a sports book related to an exchange and you can start managing that liquidity together as a hub, I think that gets very interesting, right? So I think there, there will be a place. I think we're seeing a generational shift. And I would expect that exchanges take a much larger presence in the U.S. and eventually the, the broader Americas as we see adoption of consumers of a kind of more democratized sports betting system. What are you up to now? What, what are you doing post-acquisition? Are, are you starting another company or are you enjoying retirement? <laughs> uh, I could never retire. So they... they are you hanging out at the craps yeah, tables? I wish I had more time to play poker, actually. That would, be, that would probably be my, my one request. So I, I think it would be, I look, so basically it, it's been, it's been an exciting ride even since then, right? Um, I use the Royal Wees. I've got a, a lot of various partners, but effectively launching and building new products and new companies uh, for the last uh, year or two, and then also working a lot on the venture capital side. So it's been, it's been, it's been a shift because um in some ways, as opposed to founding something directly myself, I've been in a lot of ways working with companies to help start products from scratch or take ideas and then build them into a product that we take to market, building new technology and bringing it to market. Uh, and so this way, it's been great to kind of like jump into companies and, you know, everything from like building out teams to the product build, to tech build, to go to market strategy. 
and then being able to sit alongside that and then bring in venture capital to fund it. It's been, it's been, uh, it's been interesting to kind of take this role and see this kind of development and being able to work across multiple companies all at the same time, which are in many ways all startups or early stage companies. Are you working with existing VC funds or are you thinking about starting your own fund? Uh, I think it's two parts. There's a couple of us. There's a couple of us in the industry who are involved as kind of angel venture capital guys directly uh, and girls. And then I'm working specifically with a VC fund out of uh, North Carolina. So the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians launched a venture capital fund under a company called EBCI. And we are right now deploying capital into the market and doing all sorts of very interesting things. And then I'm also uh, a partner in another venture capital fund as well called uh, Akius. So one of my passion issues, well, one of the things that kind of really gets me animated is sort of the, the legal structure that the states have chosen in the various states. Um, the, the most egregious examples would be like the Oregons that have the sort of monopolistic uh, kind of vendor model. But I even think like the New Jersey's, New Jersey's interesting because there's a lot of, I call them airport slots, but each each airport slot costs low seven figures to get, uh, you know, you have to essentially pay a racetrack or a casino to have mm -hmm. a betting license. To me, it seems very sort of anti-capitalistic to sort of have the gatekeeper be a casino for something that they really have nothing to do with. Do you think that America has made a giant mistake? Do you think it's just sort of uh, teething issues or do you think like there's no big deal and, and that's not a bad model for, for the industry? I would say it, it, in most cases, it just is the model. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I mean, look, well, it is what it what, is. What, what, are the, what are the variations on this model? Florida, which is in dispute. Uh huh. Tennessee, which is wide open. Um, Oregon, which is lottery run. You know, uh, and then everything else in between is is effectively we'll call it the market access slash skin access, right? Um, look, that was, the, that, was the, that was the 2017, that was the hypo, right? So having been in the gambling space for a long time and understanding how laws get passed and regulations get written around gambling on a state-by-state -state basis, you, know, you, you had to presume that the current state of affairs, especially around a, an industry like this, would continue, right? So in every jurisdiction, suppliers and operators of traditional gambling are deeply involved in ensuring that the market is, uh, the legislated market, the regulated market for the gambling industry is in fact, you know, for the industry, I guess is the way to think about it. And so I, I saw no way no way in hell that the casinos, the tribes, the tracks, the suppliers, the lotteries were going to lay down and watch a new form of gambling come into that space without having some voice or some opinion or some stakeholding in the process. And if you, and if you take that presumption as true, then you had to presume that a structure like the one we have now, which is effectively that the incumbents control market access to these new products was inevitable. And that the outliers would be the non-market, non-incumbent market access kind of uh, models. Now, I would say like there was like, you know, a 50-50 chance it could go the other way and all the markets say, hey, we're just going to open up. But when you're sitting there and understanding the process of government relations and how it unfolds, you know, stakeholders who are contributing X number of jobs to the economy, X number of tax dollars into the state, you know, those, those are very valuable community members in those states, and they're going to have a voice probably larger than someone who's never stepped foot into the United States and saying for the first time ever, hey, I want to do this type of gambling product as well. And so when you start to weigh those voices and weigh the process, the legislative process, it was the, the prediction was it would turn out effectively the way it has. So you're saying lobbying is effective, in other words. Lobbying is a very effective tool in the United States. That is true. <laughs> yep. a fa a fa another founder told me that he, uh, you know, would basically, um, 
went to lunches of politicians and, and all kinds of things. It's crazy the amount of stuff that is actually legal in this country. You know, it's, it's kind of a very open, you know, favor system for money, uh, money versus access. And, you know, it's, a, it's, it, it feels, it feels like it goes too far in a lot of cases. And I, and I think the casino lobby and the tribes and the Indian, um, you know, the different various tribes have, they've gone too far in this. And I think to the detriment of consumers. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of viewpoints around this, right? So, you know, I've spent my fair share of time um, educating legislators and executive branch, testifying, uh, and, you know, it's, 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 it's the process, right? And so you have to be a part of this process. And, you know, many, many of the laws and regulations that we see, you know, date back to stuff we developed in Nevada. And, and I remember having these conversations on this legal regulatory side about doing betting on your phone and getting the regulations changed so you could do bets on your phone. Um, getting regulations changed so you could uh, do digital payments, right? Uh, that was huge, right? So for like right now, it's like, wow, digital payments. Well, digital payments more than three years ago kind of didn't exist, right? And, and, and mm. you know what? It probably is, generally speaking, in the U.S. market, it is a prescriptive gambling market as opposed to a permissive gambling market. And there was historically this sense that unless – it says, yes, you can do, you need to go ask to make sure you can do. And if you have to go ask, then how do you make it happen? You need to change the legislative or the regulatory framework to make it happen. And maybe that's, maybe that's it. Maybe that's why it's kind of like this, this framework of like, this is the process and the industry that's been doing this for 60 years says, look, this is the process, guys, uh, as opposed to, I think, more of a permissive process in other jurisdictions around the world where it's once you have your license, you're allowed to do all these things called gambling or whatever it may be, so long as it's not something we tell you you can't do. And can we blame your your grandparents for setting this precedent? No, perhaps? no, no, no. I think <laughs> I think I think there's <laughs> there's many more historical waves that uh, kind of led to such a uh, precedent, right? So <laughs> I'm sure. I'm just teasing. I'm so awesome. But well, before we go, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Um, I just want to continue having a fun time in this industry. A lot of great people. I mean, you see like these constant evolutions of very smart people still looking to get out there, be entrepreneurs, start up new companies, new products, new ideas, you know, uh, working with yourself and, and, and seeing which the inroads you've made from scratch, you know, this better than anyone. You know, it's very exciting to see what uh, Smarkers is going to do. What will I be when I grow up? Ultimately, I don't know yet. Um, I will continue to evolve and do new things, as does the industry. Well, thanks so much for, for joining us on the Business Betting Podcast. And uh, you're an awesome guest. And, and yeah, thanks so much. It's awesome. I'm glad you're taking it over. Mm -hmm.